semester, we've been going through the I am statements of Jesus. Ah, thank you. Um, we've been going through the I am statements of Jesus, which has looked like marching through the Gospel of John at a pretty quick clip, looking at the places where Jesus stops and defines who he is, where he talks about uh, what he's about. Uh, where he says things like, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the vine, uh, I am the bread of life, and so on. Therefore, the working title of our series is, I Am Defines Who I Am. Alright, um, ready? <clears throat> We're working on a jingle, remember? Take a look, it's in a book. <laughs> it's Reading Rainbow. <laughs> reading Rainbow. Okay, ready? Take a look. It's in a book. I am defines who I am. Who I am. Oh, it's gorgeous. Um, hey, that title is now not only unforgettable, but educational. I'm just saying. I heard it was on PBS the other day. Okay. Seriously, what I'm trying to capture by this working title is this. Knowing Jesus, the I am, changes how we understand who we are. So knowing Jesus, the I am, changes how we understand who we are. And in order to know Jesus, we have to look at that place where he talks about himself. That place where he defines who he is. And that means looking at the Bible. And so whether we're hopeful about the Bible or whether we're skeptical about the Bible, all of us have to do the same thing in regards to Jesus. We have to take a look at it. We have to study it. And we have to confirm or deny our hope or skepticism. Okay? So there's something helpful about what we're about to do. And before we do just that and look at chapters 13 and 14 of, of the Gospel of John, I want to take a little recap, a little uh, a recall where we've been this last semester. Way back when, uh, when Taos was still under construction, we talked about uh, what God talks about in the Exodus account in chapter 3. When he says, when he says Yahweh, when God says who he is, he says, gives the name Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am, literally in the Hebrew. Again, I made an argument that all of the New Testament and the Gospel of John should be capitalized I am, but that argument has fallen on deaf ears. The translators have not listened to me because I've never talked to them. So we're, we're going to continue to know that that means, so when Jesus says, I am the way, he's actually saying, I am God, Yahweh who is the way, the truth, and the life. Okay. Also, we looked at some other I am statements, what Jesus says about himself. We looked at, I am the Messiah, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, and last week, I am the resurrection and the life. This week, we're going to look at what Jesus means when he says, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. So, if you have a Bible, turn to me with John chapter 13 and 14. If you have a bulletin, it's right there on the inside of right. Uh, we're going to look at the context, the meaning of when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're looking at chapter 13, verses 36 through 14, verse 7. So, i through a Bible. It's in the last third of the Bible, after Luke, before Acts. Lots of red letters. Would you stand for the reading of Scripture? Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? 
I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you? Will you really lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you also may be. And you also know to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Friends, these are the words of God. They are more precious than gold, even much fine gold, and they are sweeter than honey. Even honey from the honeycomb. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, this is a challenging passage. I feel like I say that every week, uh, but it's true. I feel every week humbled by your scripture, and I pray that you would help us to see clearly. Uh, I pray that you would help uh, give me words to speak, give us ears to hear, help our hearts to meditate on what's important, to look to you uh, and to your words Uh, to know that they are the way, the truth, and the life, but more importantly, to look to you, Jesus, uh, as a person, to know what rescue looks like, to know what uh, it means that you guide us and lead us. I pray, Father, that you would teach us um, in the midst of a busy semester, in the midst of a lull, in the midst of a national election. Uh, I pray that you would center our hearts and our minds on the things eternal, the things that don't pass away. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you be seated? So in college, I live a floor above uh, a girl named Hannah. Uh, Hannah was one of those girls that all my friends and all her friends would always say the same kind of hushed tone about behind her back. Wise. Oh, she's such an old soul. That was my favorite. Old soul. I don't know what that means, but it sounds really cool. Um, anyways, Hannah and I started to get, become friends as we lived near each other, and uh, I wanted to kind of see what the hype was about. And so we became more personal. Uh, the more, more friendly we became, the more personal we became, and the more uh, we started to talk about the important things in life. And one of those topics was religion. We started talking about religion a little bit more um, as we kind of talked. And... I had just become a Christian less than a year before I started following Jesus, about a year before that. Um, and she had talked, she had grown up in the church and had some misgivings about it and some frustrations, but also some praise for it. And so we had talked a lot about Christian experience small and Christian experience large. And uh, we had had pretty good conversations and pretty honest conversations. One night I ran into Hannah when I was walking back from a Bible study. Uh, I was walking actually in front of our dorm. And she was coming out, and we started talking. And of course, because I was coming back from a Bible study, the topic of the Bible study came up, and we started talking about um, what we were talking about at the Bible study. Uh, and really, just actually became talking about um, the Bible study and, and what it means to study the Bible. It was a pretty deep conversation. Uh, and then all of a sudden, Hannah gave me this hard, stinging question. Hard, stinging question. I don't know if you know this, but before hard-stinging questions, usually you get a compliment. And it went something like this. 
Sid, you are so smart and curious. <laughs> yes, Hannah, that's absolutely right. I am so smart and curious. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Butter me up, Hannah. And then she asked me the question. <laughs> then, because you're so smart and curious, then how can you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? That's so exclusive. That's so close-minded. Wow. Wow. The Hannah Sage smackdown had just occurred in my life, and I had no idea what to say to her. I just sat there with my mouth open for a couple minutes, catching lightning bugs, maybe. Um, Look, if you live in America, and uh, you believe in things like freedom and equality, verse 6 slaps you in the face at some level. It just does. No matter where you are with Jesus, uh, you could be close to him, you could be BFFs forever, you could, be, uh, you could be distant from him and not really sure if he exists. No matter what, verse 6 of chapter 14 offends us. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're actually offended by the Bible here at some level because God seems narrow-minded and frankly undemocratic when compared to the Constitution and the First Amendment and the freedom of religion, right? We're offended because we've all heard the stories or seen the news footage of the absolute religious person, the Muslim who blows himself up in a crowd in the name of Allah, or the Christian who blows up an abortion clinic, or if we're in Asia, the Buddhist monk who sets fire to another monastery of other Buddhist monks. And instead of blaming these individuals as crazy, some of us, many of us, culturally have decided to blame religion as crazy. Instead of kind of pointing out and and, and parsing individual doctrines and creeds and religions, we've decided to accuse all of religion. And let's be honest, at some level, we're also just really, not just offended, but we're really just tired. We're tired of the endless cultural wars on everything from who you marry to how you teach science. We're tired, frankly, about having those awkward Thanksgiving conversations with family members over hard topics. We would rather avoid the confrontation with family and friends. And so we look for the safe, neutral space, nestled with a good metaphor, right? Something that snuggle up to a good metaphor, where we can feel like we're not actually taking a position on anything. And, that, and that's why a, a couple of metaphors have gained some traction. It's popular to believe about religion that all the different religions are like different blind men feeling an elephant, right? One blind man feels the trunk and calls it Islam, Another blind man feels the leg and calls it Christianity. And then another blind man feels the ear and calls it uh, Buddhism. And so on and so forth. So all the many different religions and philosophies that exist. Or have you heard that one where it talks about different religions being like many paths on the same mountain? Okay? So there are all these different footpaths that all start off from different places on the base of the mountain, and they all lead to the same central top point, the same goal of God. Have you heard that one? And so the question becomes, uh, from, that, from that metaphor, why do the people at the base of the mountain spend so much time trying to convince other people to get off of their footpath and get onto, their, get onto the footpath that they belong to? What's the point of that? They should just get busy climbing up to God, just like everyone else is. 
All the footpaths are basically equal, just different. Look, I love a good metaphor. We all know this, okay? It's a guilty pleasure. Maybe not so guilty. And I really like the idea that everybody's a winner just for participating. I really do. I love that idea. I love participation awards. I've won a few, okay? (laughs) But as I said a few weeks ago, we've got to wrestle with what's true, not just what we want to be true. We've got to wrestle with what's a fact, what's reality, not just what makes us feel safe and warm and comfortable, and maybe even neutral. And this is why I'm so thankful that the Bible argues with us. It argues with us. And it gives us a different, more compelling metaphor, a different picture of God. And this is the picture in our, in our passage that it gives us. A mansion with many rooms and a single road that leads us home. A mansion with many rooms and a single road that leads us home. That's the picture that we have in this passage. And to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, though this Jesus road doesn't always feel safe, it's good. It's a good road because it's the truth and because it makes life worth living. Bold claims. John chapter 13, verses 36 through John 14, verse 7, speaks into our doubts, speaks into our frustration, and even speaks into our tiredness. And these verses say, don't be troubled. Don't be troubled. Trusting Jesus leads us into God's embrace. Don't be troubled. Trusting Jesus leads us into God's embrace. That's what these verses are speaking to us. Our passage shares this truth in a telling moment of Q&A. Okay? There's been, first there's a session of question and answer between Simon Peter and Jesus. Then afterwards, there's a question and answer session between Thomas and Jesus. But ultimately, these questions that they're asking are not just Simon's questions and Thomas's questions, or maybe even the 11 remaining disciples' questions, those people following Jesus around the Middle East. Those questions are our questions, and Jesus' answers are for us. So these two question and answer sessions apply to us in this way. First, chapter 13, verses 36 through 39, tell us this. You can't lead the way to God. You can't lead the way to God. So don't trust in yourself. You can't lead the way to God, so don't trust in yourself. Second, chapter 14, verses 1 through 4, tell us Jesus leads you into God's embrace. So trust in Jesus. Jesus leads you into God's embrace. So trust in Jesus. And then chapter 14, verses 5 through 7, tell us Jesus is how we see and know God. Therefore, enjoy Jesus. Enjoy him. All right, so I know all of us love a good metaphor. So here we go. Ready? I'm going to do that in a metaphor. Verses 36 through 39 show us we're not the road. Verses 36 through 39, we're not the road. Verses 1 through 4, Jesus is the road to the mansion. That is God the Father. Verses 5 through 7, Jesus is the only road to his Father's mansion. Because Jesus' road offers a full, breathtaking view of the mansion. Okay? So can you picture that with me? We're not the road. Jesus is the road to the mansion. And on that road, 
because it's the only road that we see the mansion full in all of its glory. Okay? Let's begin with the beginning, chapter 13, verses 36 through 39. We're going to look at the way that um, we can't lead the way to God, that we're not the road to God. Just before our passage in John 13, 33, you don't have that in your bullets, and I'm sorry. Jesus says this, Where I am going, where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you can't come. This is why, verse 36, Simon Peter asks the question on everyone's mind. Lord, where are you going? <laughs> Does that make sense? He says, hey, I'm going somewhere, you can't come along. And so Jesus, Simon Peter, asks the question that needs to be asked, where are you going? But Jesus doesn't give Simon Peter the answer that he wants. Simon Peter wants a place name. Simon Peter wants an explanation. And instead, Jesus gives him a timeline. I'll be gone a little while. That's what I say to my kids when they ask about where their mom is. I go, she'll be gone for a little bit. Like, that's because I have no clue when she's coming home. And I just want to kind of string them along, right? So you can understand why Simon Peter's a little frustrated in the next section. And so he asks a pretty bitter question in verse 37. He pouts a little bit, okay? But then he remembers he's a leader. He's a leader of leaders. And so you can almost imagine him reaching up onto his ancient bookshelf and pulling down seven highly effective habits for religious leaders. Or whatever the religious kind of ancient Jerusalem version was, okay? And he sort of thinks, okay, step one, be assertive. Be assertive. By the way, that's like the most highlighted section of the book for, for Simon Peter, if you know anything about him. Okay? Be assertive. And so Peter thinks, I'm going to be assertive. And so he says to him, I will lay my life down for you. Not, you will lay my life down for I will lay my life down for you, Jesus. And of course Jesus scoffs and goes, honestly, Pete. <laughs> Pete, can we have a moment? Can we have a moment here? Who are you to lead me? What's this foolishness about? And then Jesus goes on to talk in, in depth about how Peter will deny him three separate times when asked to acknowledge Jesus. And this is, by the way, when Jesus is like in prison being beaten and interrogated. Jesus says, hey, I don't, have anything, I don't know that guy. I don't have anything to do with him. Three separate times in the early dawn hours. But before we wag our heads at Peter, before we throw him under the bus of history, okay, let's think a little bit about um, how Peter and Thomas later in verse 5, and all of the disciples are just like us for a second, okay? They're just like us. Or rather, I guess we should say, we're just like the disciples. We're just like Thomas, and we're just like Simon Peter. I love the way that Frederick Buechner uh, puts it. I don't know how many, I mean, does anyone have a quote count on Frederick Buechner? It's got to be in the dozens at this point in the semester. Anyway, moving on. My man crush, Frederick Buechner. Um, Frederick Buechner talks about John's gospel in a beautiful way. He talks about the text that we're studying and looking at right now. Buechner says of gospels like John's, quote, They are a story not about stained glass people. Okay. But these are about people who lived and breathed and sweated and made love and used bad language when they tripped over furniture in the dark. And sometimes they laughed themselves silly over nothing. Over nothing in particular. 
and were thus, in many ways, people just like us. Such a helpful reminder for us to think about. So when Peter suggests that he's going to lay down his life for Jesus and not the other way around, he's saying something that we all think, or something that we've all thought about at one time or another. I'll lead. I know the way in this life. I'll lead myself first, and then I'll lead everyone else after me. That's what I'll do. And this looks innocent enough. A few good behaviors added in here. A few good positive thoughts added there. Until it develops into a self-salvation system. Okay? A way to feel fully and finally good enough to the world and to yourself. A road to God by any other name. And many of us would never call the small daily resolutions that we make self-salvation. Watching our language, smiling and listening more, willing, uh, willing ourselves into a cheerful optimism, snacking less and study, studying more. Those are good habits individually, okay? Nothing's wrong with them individually. And even individually, they don't, they don't smack of eternal life, right? There there's doesn't seem to be any salvation about them. They don't seem like a road to God. After all, some of us here aren't even really convinced that God exists. But what else, who else but God, what else do we, but God do we call acceptance? What else but God do we call what we're all looking for with the accumulation of small, minute changes in our life? The small, maybe even good ways that we fix ourselves can become the chief way that we make ourselves feel better. The chief way that we feel okay about ourselves. Look at the ways that we self-sacrifice, at the motives behind the daily regimen that we're all putting in place. Are we telling God, I've got this, life's under control, God, stand aside and let me do my business. I'm okay. Are we telling God, are we asking God, are we saying to God, I got it. I can keep up with you, God. Help? Maybe. Rescue? Thanks, but no thanks. I've got this under control. Do we live by the promise of our self-effort? By our self-sacrifice? Are we living by the promise, the moment-by-moment need of Jesus' sacrifice for us? Simply, what are we trusting in? What are we trusting us in to lead us into joy, into rest, into acceptance? That is such a hard motive question to ask, but such a good one to ask. Because otherwise we find ourselves saying to Jesus, I'll lay my life down for you. Let me give you a personal example that might help explain this a little bit more. Uh, When I was four or five years old, I was working on a craft. In the kitchen chair, okay? Everyone knows what a craft entails when you're four or five years old. You take a a big thing of Elmer's glue, some construction paper, and some safety scissors, right? That's what we do. Meanwhile, I had my partner in crime, Pete the Dragon. Pete the Dragon was a stuffed animal, uh, about a good good place between the ribs and the arm, fit, uh, bowling ball body, really long, thin neck, small head, and a tuft of white hair, okay? Kind of a beautiful little shock of white hair. 
Uh, my mom, my mom left the room for a few minutes and didn't really tell me when she was coming back. And I looked at the safety scissors. I looked at Pete's hair, and I thought, "Here's a project. Here's a craft." <laughs> so I went to work with my inner hairstylist and decided to give a little trim here, a little trim there. Pretty soon, Pete had a buzz cut. Okay, my mom still wasn't there. I looked at the safety scissors again, did the math, and said. Here we go. It's go time, and I became my own barber. Everyone's done this at some age when they're little. Okay, so I took the stop, I took the safety scissors, <laughs> and I went to work. Okay, <laughs> I applied all of my five-year-old finesse, all of my five-year-old styling points, and, and, I, and I trimmed a little here, cut a little there, big cut, little cut, angled the scissors, <laughs> serrated the edges, rounded off the tips. Um, or so I thought, and thought I even rough, rough, even kind of roughed out, even sorry, evened out the rough edges. I thought I had gotten this whole thing down. I had a beautiful haircut. My mom finally came back into the kitchen and just screamed, was horrified. And I thought, for, I was like, what's the big deal? I thought this was going to be unnoticeable, right? Just a little snip here, a little snip there. I mean. Just a haircut. I mean, does everyone notice a haircut immediately when you walk into a room? <laughs> I thought that I was so subtle that I had caught the spirit and the shape and the vibe of my head that I had perfectly con- contoured a-, a haircut. Okay? But my mom pulled the mirror up and showed me <laughs> the result of my haircut. And I did what every five year old with a pair of safety scissors does I cut the bangs straight across. <laughs> Okay, and there was just my hair, and then when the eyebrows met together, it was just a giant chunk out of my hair. <laughs> sort of Frankenstein-esque. Um, so, um, and of course she had every right to be horrified, uh, and she showed me her work. And a few moments of panic later, I was in the car and on the way to the barber. And I was in the barber's chair, and there he was clucking his tongue and fixing the mess that I had made of my hair. Okay. I mean, this guy had perspective. He knew what he was looking at, and he knew what he was doing. Okay? Here's my point. Spiritually speaking, we're five-year-olds with safety scissors. Spiritually speaking, we're five-year-olds with safety scissors. We think we need a spiritual trim, so we take matters into our own hands. We don't have the perspective or the ability to fix ourselves, but we, th- and we think where there's a will, there's a way. But let me be honest. Where there's a will, there often isn't a way. We need Jesus to right our wrongs, to fix the ways that we even try to fix ourselves. He's the barber in my story, or more appropriately, the barber is a reflection of Christ in his story. Jesus has got the proper perspective on our problems. Jesus has a supernatural ability to fix what's broken, to fix what needs to be fixed, even if we're trying to fix it ourselves. We need Jesus to lead us to God. We need Jesus to give us God's, lead us to God's acceptance, his peace, his joy, his love. And Jesus does just that. That's his promise. In verses 1 through 4, this is my second point, Jesus promises he's the road to God. He's the road to God. Verse 1 tells us the truth. We're troubled in life. Right? 
We're troubled in life. Things don't work out for the best all the time. Our relationships are shambles and a mess. People like Judas betray us. We, like Simon Peter, betray other people. That's life. And we feel troubled. And verse 1 also tells us the true solution to our problems, or to our troubles. Follow Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Not in yourself. Not in myself. But in Jesus. Jesus says it simply. Believe in God. And also believe in me. It's that simple. And it's that hard. In some ways we're going to be unpacking that verse for the rest of our time together. But before we do that... Um, explicitly, verses 2 through 4 aren't content to leave us with abstractions. We're not, he's not content to just talk about what it means to believe in God. He gives us a picture. Jesus pictures a road that leads to a father's house with many rooms. God, or more precisely, the God of the full presence of blessing in his arms. That God is described as a mansion. A mansion. Have you ever thought about this image? This is Jesus' way of describing the reality of what it means to have a relationship with God. He chooses a mansion. This is because he can't possibly make this understandable to us. He has to stretch our imaginations and stretch our use of language to show us what God, who God is really in his fullness. He's a mansion. But here's, here's a caution. God isn't literally the Hampton Inn. Okay? He's not literally the Hempstead. It's not like uh, when a Christian dies, he gets a magnetic key card, and he gets led to a room with identical floral patterns on the coverlet. Okay? It's not like you have a matching dining room table set somehow next to your refrigerator that's a mini fridge that's off limits because it's expensive. That's not how God is. Okay? He's just trying to give you a picture. He's saying that there's a place for each and every one of us if we believe in Jesus. A special place for each and every one of us. A spiritual and physical room of one's own in the presence of God. This is really important. This means that God's big enough. He's big enough to hold all of us at the same time. And he's loving enough. He's loving enough to know our names and our individual needs and wants. And to make and to trace every story that we have end in a happily ever after. That's the promise of the mansion. How? How is this the promise? God, Jesus Christ had to go and prepare the rooms. How did he prepare the rooms? He went and died on a cross. That's what he's talking about. And that's why he laughs when Simon Peter says, I'm going to lay your life down for me. Because he says, no, that's exactly the opposite. I'm going to lay my life down for you. The road to the mansion, the road to God the Father, is shellacked. It's shellacked with Jesus' blood. It's not a black top that's black. It's a black top that's red. Those aren't potholes that we're walking on. Those are the holes that the nails drove through Jesus' hands and feet. Since Jesus' sacrifice is the pavement to the road to God, the present journey and not just the future destination is sacred. 
Both are sacred. Does that make sense? In the Christian economy, it's not just about looking forward to heaven and all the good gifts you'll get there. In the Christian economy, it's about enjoying the present. It's about enjoying the journey with Jesus. It's about enjoying the fellowship of the journey with other people on the journey with Jesus. Your fellow travelers. It looks like meditating on the red-stained road that leads to God. It looks like gazing at the mansion hanging on the horizon. And how there's a place for us. Prepared. A room of one's own. In the presence of God. But we don't get this. Clearly. Okay, that's why he's pushing it with a mansion. That's why we're thinking the Hampton Inn. We don't get this. We don't get what that means. We don't understand how to hold in tension God the Father and Jesus the Son. The Trinity is, is hard. We don't understand how to hold intention heaven and earth, and how heaven, how earth will one day become heaven because heaven will come to earth. We don't understand all that stuff. We don't get it. It's hard to picture. It's hard to picture that Jesus is the only road to seeing and knowing God here on earth. That's hard, and that's part of our problem. And so, when Thomas voices our misgivings in verse not verse five, there are misgivings, right? He's asking a very good question. He's asking, how can we know the way, how can we know the way to where, we're, where you're going, Jesus? How can we know the way to the mansion? Thomas wants a map, right? Thomas wants a clear-cut set of directions that go turn by turn through what the Christian life looks like. Doesn't he? That's what he's asking for. He wants a clear 10-step plan about how to date somebody the right way. He wants a don't-touch-these-body-parts chart. That's what he wants. He wants to know, for some of us, how to even find somebody to date. We want a treasure map with X marks the spot so that we can find out what major we're supposed to major in and how to do that major the rest of our lives. We want... A 15-turn set of directions to being a good friend and having good friends. And I don't care how many. That's what we want. But notice in verses 6 through 7, Jesus and the Bible are not a GPS. They're not a GPS. Which is amazing to me. Jesus doesn't primarily offer us his teaching. In these verses, he's primarily offering himself. I love the way that the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard puts this. He says this, The object of a student is not the teacher, but the teaching. The object of a Christian is not the teaching, but the teacher. The object of a student is not the teacher, but the teaching. While the object of a Christian is not the teaching, but the teacher. Okay, before we throw Soren Kierkegaard... We chase into a windmill with, with uh, pitchforks. Let's think about that for a second, okay? He's not saying that doctrine and theology are terrible and we don't need them. What he's saying is exactly what these verses are saying. He's echoing the sentiment of the passage. He's saying Jesus, not what he says, primarily. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. A relationship with Jesus, trusting in him, learning to love what Jesus loves, learning to hate what Jesus hates. Knowing Jesus knows the way 
to eternal life and truth, and following him in that, knowing what Jesus knows, even, a life eternal with a room of one's own and the embrace of God, a truth that sets us free, free from trying to fix ourselves and failing, free from what, from thinking or worrying about what other people think of us. And that leads me back to my story that I didn't finish with Hannah, the wise old soul. Okay? You remember Hannah asked me, how can you believe that Jesus is the only way to God? That's so exclusive. That's so close-minded. And of course, I didn't have anything to say for a while. But then eventually I did have something to say. And I gave her my best shot. And here's what I said. Well, I guess that makes you close-minded too. Because you're being closed-minded about my closed-mindedness. Did you get that? You're being closed-minded about my closed-mindedness. And I know that for some of you that just feels like a clever answer, like candy, trying to feed yourself with candy. Oh, that's sweet, but then you don't really feel any substance. Um, let me just kind of unpack that a little bit. For, for I want you to see the impossible arrogance behind the accusation of Christianity's arrogance. There's an impossible arrogance behind the accusation of Christianity being arrogant. Think about the tempting metaphors again. Religion, religion, all the religions are just blind men groping an elephant and calling the different parts different religions. All the religions are just different paths up the same mountain leading to the same summit, the same top of the mountain, God. They both seem so incredibly humble. That's why they're so appealing. And they seem like they're just giving withering attacks on what it on absolute truth, right? They seem like they're withering attacks. They're humble, and they seem like everything can't be true. But think again about the perspective of the person telling those stories. Think about the perspective of the person giving you that metaphor for just a second. Doesn't the person who tells you about all the blind men reaching for the elephant have to be in some way not blind? So of all the people in all the world, there's one person that can see everything and tells you exactly how everything works. Or think about the mountaintop for a second. There has to be someone who's been elevated to such a height that they have a bird's eye view, a God-sized view of the situation. They can see how all the little paths lead to the same point, to the same God. Someone has to have... Uh, someone has to know that all of the religions have partial truth. That requires a whole truth. Do we get that? A claim to the whole truth is a claim to absolute truth. And a claim to absolute truth is exactly what people are denying when they call Christianity arrogant. We follow that a little bit. I can explain that later, hopefully. Okay. Let me just put it this way. These two metaphors assume that Christianity and Buddhism and Islam are all just groping after the same God. But how do we know that's true? Especially when the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Christians who are devout all claim that they're not going after the same God. At the very least, we have to admit that saying there isn't one way to God, that there's more than one way to God, saying that assumes as much truth as saying that there is one way to God named Jesus Christ. 
At the end of the day, in our own power, by our own observations and reasoning, we cannot confidently say which religion is actually true, or whether they are all false. Those are both impossible statements by human natural reasoning. That's why we have to trust in someone. That's why we have to trust in something outside of ourselves. That's why Jesus very simply tells us verse 1. Believe in God. And also, believe in me. He is the way and the truth and the life. He does the rescuing. All other philosophies, all other religions, and I've studied a ton of them, we can talk about it later, they all give a teaching for us to do. A teaching that rescues us. Something to do, to feel, to think properly. A teaching to feel, to do, to think properly. And then and only then we make it to paradise or nirvana or samadhi or all the other different expressions for the goal of religion and these different religions. But Christianity does not offer us a teaching primarily. Primarily Christianity offers us a teacher. The gospel message is not just more good advice. The gospel message is good news. Do you see the difference between advice and news? It's not just go and do some more stuff. It's that stuff has been done for you and for me. And that makes all the difference. Christianity primarily is not about do the Ten Commandments and then you get to God. Christianity is God incarnate. Jesus Christ did the Ten Commandments to get to you and to me. That's an amazing truth. And so it's not surprising that the last words of Christianity stand out when compared to the other philosophies and religions. If you look at the great teachers, you look at the great sages, and you look at the great thinkers, Jesus' last words stand out in relief. For example... On his deathbed, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, says this to his followers, his disciples. Strive without ceasing. Strive without ceasing. Do you know what Jesus says on his deathbed, on the cross, right before he dies? What are his last words? It is finished. It's finished. All the striving... All the ceaseless striving, all the works that we have to do, all the things that we have to do and think and feel, they're finished. He's done the Ten Commandments for you and for me. If we believe he has. And that kind of rescue, the kind of rescue that Jesus as a, as a teacher is offering, not his teaching but himself, that kind of rescue doesn't lead to false arrogance. It leads to true humility. Because all of a sudden, we're not the people patting ourselves on the back. All of a sudden, we're the people on our knees pointing to someone else. I think that should change the way we are, whether we're Christian. Maybe we need to not do the things that we do to other people. And if we're not Christian, maybe we need to reconsider the claims of Christ afresh. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm thankful for this passage. I'm thankful for the difficulty um, and the glory that you show us that there is a beautiful uh, confidence that we can have by faith, but it's a confidence that makes us absolutely meek and humble. I pray, Father, that you remind us of that, that you remind me of that, that I wouldn't uh, be a person that wags my finger, 
I wouldn't be a person that beats my chest. I pray that we would be as Christians um, or as people seeking Christianity, people of hum- humility, people who know their limits, people who trust in a power greater than themselves and a person named Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that you flesh out for us in our hands and our feet and our daily lives what it means that you're the true, the way, the truth, and the life. I ask, Father, for that wisdom, for that glory, for that presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.